Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Judges is one of the most violent and bloody books in the Bible. It is not a moral manual or a story about role models, but rather a tragic narrative about Israel's moral corruption and God's continued commitment to saving his people. The tragedy here lies in the overwhelming corruption and depravity of our human condition. Despite being loved and sought after by the king of all kings, Israel's cycle of rebellion remains unbroken. Israel rebels, God allows them to be conquered and oppressed. Israel cries out and repents. God sends a judge to deliver them. There would be an era of peace, but eventually Israel would sin and the cycle would start over. This is the rhythm of judges. God has called his people to be a holy people. And instead of remaining faithful to the law and showing all the other nations who God is and what he is like, they become no different from those who dishonor God. They did what was right in their own eyes. As time goes on, these judges, or rulers of the people, become more and more corrupt. When we define what is good, we hit rock bottom. The book ends with a phrase that is repeated four times. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They have no king, nobody to unite them and bring them out of their cycle of corruption. They need to be rescued. They need a king who can rescue them from themselves. The book of Judges not only points to King David, but points to our ultimate king, the one who can rescue us fully, Jesus. Our whole aim and goal is to make Jesus the hero, so that this church isn't about any one individual or, or person that's building any kind of ministry, whether it be Rick or Jason and the kids' ministry or myself. It's not about any one person, but it's all about lifting up the name of Christ and making much of who he is, because he is the hero of all of human history. And it's interesting, we're actually going to look at a hero in the book of Judges today, one of many heroes in the Bible, and um, Othniel's story is pretty short, so we don't really see a whole lot of fault. It's only a couple verses, but many of the supposed heroes in the Bible oftentimes have many faults and, and failures. And if we're honest with ourselves, we begin to realize that we have a lot of failures. Uh, Nicole and I, I and I've, I've said this before, Nicole doesn't look to me to be her ultimate hero or, or the perfect husband. My wife, Nicole, doesn't look to find those things in me, her savior, anything like that. Uh, if, if she did, ultimately, I would let her down. Uh, e even if I did okay as, as a husband, none of us are eternal. And we'll see that with Othniel. Eventually, something is going to let us down. And so we lift up Jesus, we look to him, and that's what we'll be doing today as we continue on in this series that we started last week in the book of Judges. If you saw from the 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 sermon bumper that Becca made, a great explanation of the book of Judges. There's a lot of content and information in the book of Judges, a lot of names, a lot of places. It's a big narrative. And I would encourage you as we're going through the book of Judges, if you could read it on your own, Nicole and I and our oldest daughter, when, when we put the little ones down, we go through it every night and just, it's kind of a big book and a lot of stuff. We usually take it up 
uh, passage by passage, not necessarily chapter by chapter, but just kind of digest a lot of the information in there. The title to this sermon series is called Trust Me, I Know I'm Right. I don't know if it's up there. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, Trust Me, I Know I'm Right. If you saw it earlier, it's intentionally misspelled. Yes. Um, and, and that's on purpose. Because the whole idea is the book of Judges is about what happens when people walk away from God. When they see the way that God has commanded they live and they, they reject his way of living and say, I think I know better for myself. Um, kind of a foolish thing to do as somebody, even like myself in my 30s or your 20s or 30s to say, you know what, God, I, I think I know best and I'm going to do things my own way. And this is kind of the book of Judges. They walk away. They begin to kind of look like the nations around them and get themselves into all sorts of trouble. And that's where we kind of left off last week. For this week, we're going to be in Judges 2.16 through 3.11, picking up where we left off last week. If you have a Bible, you can turn there now. We'll read it, and then we'll dive into the passage. Basically, today, we're going to get an overview, a partial overview of the book of Judges, and then we're coming into the Judge Othniel. And if there was a theme or a main point, I would tell you to, to kind of capture in mind when Caleb read that verse earlier during worship, it, it, it's the idea of stepping out of the light of God into darkness. And those consequences, that contrast between light and darkness, life and death, the presence of God, and being cast out from his presence. That, that's kind of the theme of what we're looking at today. So I'll read Judges 2, 16, 3 through 11. It's not too long. And then we'll jump in. Judges 2.16, this is continuing off of 15. It says, it starts with then, which is a conjunction. So it's connecting the previous uh, verses. It's kind of a continuation of a thought of that overview of the book of Judges, the trouble that they would continually get themselves in the book of Judges. And now God continues with this cycle that they go through. Then the Lord raised, raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them. Whenever they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or didn't or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is all Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal-Hermon as far as Lebo-Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Almost done. Now we come into Othniel. So this was a summary of the book of Judges, kind of talking about that cycle they're going to go through. And now we come to the first judge. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and their Asherah. Therefore, the anger, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, the spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the space and time to come gather. Thank you for the technology we have that, that those who uh, may be at risk or, or not comfortable meeting in person yet are able to experience uh, the worship service with the rest of the body and remain connected. I thank you for this book of Judges and its, its realness, its rawness, and the disgustingness of our consequences, that in communicating to your people, you don't shy away from the truths of the world, that you're a God that stepped in and entered into our suffering and our brokenness and provided a solution. We pray that we would make much of Jesus for providing that way of peace and rest for your people. And we love you, God, and praise you forevermore. Amen. So as I said, starting in verse 16, we have that, that word then combining this passage with the previous one, talking about this cycle that they're continuously going through. And when we left off last week, we were at 2.15, in the distress of the people. And, and whenever they're in distress, as we see later on in this verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, they would cry out, God would feel pity, and he would send a deliverer, someone to rescue them. And why, why are they in distress? Is it because they're just victims of the societies around them? Is it, is it just that other nations' problems? It, it's nothing wrong with Israel. They're just kind of caught in the middle of everything that's going on in the world. I would not be surprised if some of the Israelites were seriously asking themselves, why, why are we being plundered? Why is this happening to us? Or even pointing the finger at these other wicked nations and saying, they're the problem. If only they, God would do something about them, then we wouldn't be engaging in all this stuff or we wouldn't be experiencing all this suffering. It's funny and, and a little sad, and I don't want to say any names because the, the truth is all my kids do this, but there is one kid in particular who is often, often a victim of their own rebellion. And the, the face they give me sometimes of absolute shock and horror when they've hurt themselves from doing something I, I've told them a million times not to do uh, for that very reason. I, I just, I'm absolutely dumbfounded. They look at me like, like the world is so cruel and how could this thing be happening to them? And, and I just stand there like, I, I've literally told you a thousand times don't do that. And this is exactly why. Um, and, and if you're a parent, you know this. I feel like half of my time is trying to keep my kids alive. Uh, the other day, Miles was up in the playroom with the, the thing we use for the curtain to pull it up and down. He had it around his neck standing on the toy box, which I told him a million times not to stand on the toy box. And I, yeah, literally half my life is just trying to keep my kids alive. And, and the Israelites maybe could have been experiencing the same thing, wondering why all this stuff is happening. But the truth is, just like my kids, oftentimes, they were a victim of nothing more than their own rebellion and stubbornness. We talked about this last week, that you, you reap what you sow. And it's not the idea of karma. It's, it's different than that in a sense. But if you sow evil down into the ground, it kind of comes back in on yourself. God's kind of set the world up to work this way. It's literally the entire point behind the book of Proverbs. You read through the entire thing, and it's, it's basically 
It, it's what it's about. Not that you'll always experience this perfect life, but if you, if you kind of follow the wisdom of God, then things will go semi-well for you. But when you step out of God's light and move into the darkness, you begin to reap darkness and sow some of that upon yourself, as the Israelites here do when they step out. If you go around this world raping, lying, breaking, hurting, cheating, life's just going to be rough for you. I've heard, I've heard some... I've heard sermons before from, from like preachers or whatever. And maybe some of you have heard this phrase, maybe give a head nod if maybe you've experienced this too, but you heard, heard like this phrase, like sin is fun for a season. Anybody ever heard that? Is that just me? Some people. Okay. Some people heard this phrase when someone says sin is fun for a season. Honestly, is it though? Is it? I wouldn't even say it is. So for God's people, I would say it's not, but for anybody else, is it fun for a season? Who finds himself in a jail cell thinking, you know what? I was missing out, but now this is incredible. This is a great experience. Actually, I can't wait till I get into solitary confinement and I might just ride this thing on into the chair. Let's see how far this bad boy can go. I've been missing out on all these fun things. No, it's like instant regret. Nobody goes to, to that, you know, that website, everybody knows what I'm talking about, that website clicking in the privacy or looking things up on your phone in privacy and shame. And after they experience it, they go, wow, I was missing out until I saw this and, and did this thing. No, it's instant shame. It's instant guilt and regret. And why is that feeling there anyway? Nobody saw what you did, but it's still there. We never, we always chase after these other things thinking that somehow God's holding something out from us. And it's just like my kids. They think they're going to experience some kind of joy by climbing on something they're not supposed to or running out into traffic. And it's like the whole time I was just trying to protect you and keep you in the goodness of my presence and my provision. So the Israelites step out of this into the darkness. They move away from the light of God and who will save the Israelites and their stubbornness and their rebellion. And who will save us when we do the very same thing? And all my Sunday school kids were like, years of training, ready. God, obviously God. God's the answer. And it's, it's a simple answer. It's God. But it's not always that easy. Because we quickly doubt and move away from the goodness of God. The Israelites, as I said last week, had plenty of fortune to look back on and praise God for. Many of the miracles he did to move them out, it wasn't like he was just asking them to do something out of the blue. He had demonstrated his faithfulness to them many times. It's funny and a little sad. My beautiful and lovely wife was telling, we were telling a very funny story last week. Um, we, we usually have family come over on like Friday or Saturday and her mother-in-law and her were, were recounting the story of Nicole's youth where I, I guess there was some problem with Nicole's mom and she had decided this is enough. I'm packing my bags and I'm, I'm, I'm moving. I think you were like nine at the time, maybe. And so she's, she's like, I'm packing my bags. I'm moving. I'm done with this. I don't like the way mom's running the house basically. And so her mom helped her pack her bags. And, and we can laugh about this now when we were, when we were looking back, the truth is like when her mom did that, she was essentially saying, you don't like my provision. You don't like my care. You don't like the way I'm doing things. Let me, let me help you experience what it's like not to have those things in order to shake you and help you realize what I'm doing for you and how good you really have it. In a sense, God is helping the Israelites pack their bags. He says, you want to experience life without me. Let me help you experience that in its fullness. C.S. Lewis once said, that on the last day, 
there will be many people who say to God, thy will be done. And there will be many people whom God says, thy will be done. As to say, there are some people who will look to God and say, God, I can't do this. I'm, I'm tired of trying to, trying to run my life on my own. I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. You're a good and faithful God. You're the sovereign God. You're the all-knowing God, the all-powerful. Your will be done, God, not mine. I need you to save me, God. There's nothing I can do on my own. But then there will be some of those who say to God, no, I want to do this. I don't want to do it your way. Just like in the garden when God had told them, he had showed them good and evil and what was right and wrong, and they rejected his definitions of good and evil and decided to define everything for themselves. And just like in the book of Judges, when they run away from the way God had set things up to do life on their own, God will say, fine, your will be done. If this is what you want, I will let you experience the darkness. And those who aren't shaken out of this and brought back into the fold of God have a grim fate ahead of them. Luckily for Nicole and, and my mother-in-law, she had the good wisdom even at the age of nine to realize shortly after making it around the corner outside of her house that this is stupid and I'm coming home. For the Israelites, not so much. In verse 18, we have the Lord raising up judges to save his people. He's moved by their cries for salvation. When they experience this pain, they cry out to God. He's moved by it. So he raises up a judge. This is the pattern of judges. In verse 19, we see that as soon as the leader over them would die, they would get complacent and they would dive right back into the same things. They would become even more corrupt than their fathers, taking it a step further. And verse 20 through 23, it shows how God would use the surrounding nations to judge Israel by no longer going out to war with the Israelites. So allowing them to experience, you don't want my provision, you don't want my protection, you don't want my victory that I have for you? Fine. Let me give you a taste of what that's like. Again, God says to them, if you don't want to experience my goodness, let me help you pack your bags. He's not going to force them into no longer serving the Baals and the Asherahs and giving up their children to child sacrifice and just burning them on the altar. God says, you want to do these awful and wicked things? Then let me pull back my light and you can experience the full weight of that darkness. What's really sad about this is if you look back at Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8, Israel was supposed to be a light to the world. The, the other nations are supposed to look at Israel and see this beautiful light. It's like this. I brought something to help us. I, I don't know if, I, I don't think I ever do this, but I was thinking about this and I thought this would, would, would help us see just how crazy this is. You, you have the world at this time and, and it's, it's awful. Our world isn't that much better. We're somewhat more civilized. Mostly, honestly, through the last 2,000 years, many of that was through the work of the church and, and building all kinds of things. The Romans would even talk about how the church was doing a better care, taking care of their people than the Roman government was able to. But, but this was a very dark time. And you have this world full of brokenness. I, I pulled a bunch of dirt and basically dead leaves out of my yard. And, and this is what it was like. God, this, this really should be like a, a flamethrower, but I think we'd get kicked out of here if I did that. But God looks at all the brokenness. He pulls up Israel. Nothing special about them. They're just as dark and pagan as the rest of the world. And he gives them his light. He, he gives them fellowship. He gives them his law. And he says, you are to be a light to all the nations. 
to where now everyone else is supposed to look up in Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8. It's, it says, let me read this for you. It says, keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom. Talking about the commandments and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this nation is wise and great and understanding, and, and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? So other people would see Israel and they would worship God for the way in which they ran their society. The justice, the peace, the love for one another, which is what all of the law was pointing to. And so God gives this, them this light. And the Israelites go, thank you, God. And now they look like everyone else. Instead of being something with which the nations would look to them for, now they look like everyone else amongst them. They've plunged themselves right into the darkness when God had given them his light. And the sad thing is, many of us in the church today do the same thing. We were talking about this in our, in our community group the other day. If a Muslim were to come to you and ask you, are you a Christian? What do you think the appropriate response would be? Just take a guess. A Muslim says, are you a Christian? What would you say? Yes, I'm, th yes, that's an obvious answer, right? Not a good answer, though, and here's why. Many Muslims, when you tell them, I am a Christian, that is solidifying in their mind the idea that you are a, a, a booze-drinking, scandal-clad, pornography-watching Westerner. Really, this is what they think. Honestly, the better question would be to say, what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean a Christian? Because they have this idea from, I mean, uh, Christianity has kind of been associated with Western culture, but oftentimes it's many of the Christians that have left this taste in their mouth that when you say, yeah, well, I mean, it seems like an obvious thing to say, of course I'm a Christian. But, and I'm not saying that alcohol is bad. I'm talking like full-on diving into alcoholism, letting it ruin your life. Um, and and, and I'm, I don't want to create like a super guilt situation, but I'm just saying that that's what they see when they see Christians or they hear the term Christian, they paint this picture in their mind of what a Christian is, is what I'm saying. And, and we're kind of to blame for this. Uh, and not every single person individually, but the church at large kind of puts this out there for the world to see. When we start looking like the rest of the people around us, it creates a lot of confusion amongst the body. And even for those outside that are looking to us, they're looking to us to be that light that Jesus called us to be. I mean, this is the very thing that Jesus talked about in Matthew 5.15 about not hiding your light and sticking that as I did into the rest of the world and hiding it in a bush, but, but putting it out there for the world to see so that they could see the glory of God working through you and your love for one another. Not to earn salvation or anything like this, but because of what God has done for us and is now working through us, we are the light that people look towards as the nation of Israel should have been for the people around them. They should have seen them and glorified God as many people should see our good works and our love for one another and glorify God. And it's not like there, there's a, a common passage. It's like preach the gospel everywhere. And if necessary, use words. That's silly. You need to use words. You need to communicate the gospel. You need to say the gospel and tell people and share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ having come and paid for our sins. However, that good news is not just something for the future. It says that Jesus has saved us and is saving us. He is turning our hearts back towards the law of God so that we could demonstrate that love for one another and be that light for people. So in 3, 7 through 12, 
Because of Israel's current disobedience, it says God handed them over to Kishon Rishathim. And this is awful because they've become slaves again. If you know anything about the story of the Old Testament, God had rescued them from Egypt. They were in slavery. He rescued them. And here they are again in slavery to Kishon Rishathim. It says in verse 8, they were serving him. And how do they respond to their plight? When you feel as though you're a slave to your sin and entrapped by it, where can you go? Where do you go? Practical techniques? Do they begin plotting? You know, how can we figure this out? How can we rescue ourselves and get ourselves out of the situation? You get advice from some gurus or special psychologists. Maybe it works for a time, but it could never restore you to God. It's interesting that when Israel cries out, God sends a person, a man, Othniel. That's it. And, and many people are bothered by that. Maybe, maybe even some of you that, that God wouldn't just, why wouldn't he just perform some kind of miracle and do something? And many times in our own lives, when maybe we're struggling with something, why won't God just, boom, do something? The truth is, the, the miracles in the Bible are, are very few and far and few between. You know, in the course of thousands and thousands of years, there's only a couple times it happened. God oftentimes works through very ordinary means and ordinary people. Many times the miracle you may be working, looking for, for something, for something crazy, for God to move in your life, some kind of miraculous healing or provision, sometimes it's done through very ordinary means and ordinary people just stepping up, coming together and loving one another. Othniel was just, was just a man that God called to do this thing. So God works through Othniel to rescue them. He could have accomplished it by the power of his decree, but he decides to work through people and with people. The partnership that he originally intended in the garden, working with humanity, not against or broken away from them. Would it be easier for God? Absolutely. Was it easier for me to do yard work last week by myself? Sure. But my kids wanted to, I mean, they thought it was playtime. Now, they were messing everything up and making it more difficult, but, you know, I'm not going to tell them just get out of here. You know, I, I brought them in to participate with me because they're my children and I love them and I, and I want to be in their presence and, and work together alongside them. And it's the same thing. I mean, there's nothing that God needs from us. We're not, we're not out there killing it or doing anything crazy. God could do this all on his own, but he chooses to work through very ordinary people as he does here with Nothaniel. This judge is very short. It, it's super short. It's just a couple of verses, but it's, it's plenty interesting. There is a progression in his saving the people of Israel. First, it says he judges them in verse 10. Many commentators take this to mean that he turned their worship back to Yahweh. So before he even delivers them, rescues them, goes out to war, he turns the people away from the Baals and the Asherahs and the child sacrifice and possibly the temple prostitution and whatever kind of wickedness they were engaging in, maybe taking people and putting them into slavery and all different kinds of things. And he turns them back to Yahweh and says, let's worship our God. Let's throw away and cast off these things and look to God. Then he goes to war and he prevails over Kushan Rishathim. He brings the people out from under slavery. He rescues them and he even brings them into a time of peace. And his story is super short. In verse 11, it ends with this. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. That's the end of the story. Super short. I mentioned this before. When we say make Jesus the hero, I think that's an amazing 
an amazing thing to center our ministry around. As I, as I said earlier with my wife, if she was looking to me to fulfill all her desires, ultimately I'm going to fail her. If anybody's looking to me to, to be just an amazing, outstanding, stellar leader or pastor or looking to Rick or, or any other person in the church or your boss or whatever relationship you're in, if you're looking for that other person to be your hero and your, and your ultimate and your savior and putting them up on a pedestal, they're going to fail you. Eventually they just are. It doesn't matter where you go, whatever political candidate you pick, whatever pastor or online celebrity you see or, or, or you know, internet celebrity, it doesn't matter. None of them are perfect. And even if they do okay, as Othniel here did, I mean, he rescued them. He went bravely. He turned them back to God. But what happened in verse 11? He dies. He's mortal. Nothing can bear the weight of our hope other than God himself. He was only there for a time, and the second he was gone, that cycle started all over again. They became complacent. They engaged in all the stuff that the surrounding nations were doing, and they were lost again. And what did they need? Another hero, another temporary hero to rescue them for a time and help them. All of this stuff will ultimately fail us. He wasn't a permanent fix for the people of Israel, nor was he meant to be. All the heroes throughout the Old Testament, as great or as awful as they were, were all pointing forward to Jesus. They were all looking forward. All throughout the Old Testament hero, people were waiting with hopeful and joyful expectation of the Messiah that would come and rescue them for their situation. This is so funny when the Israelites, when Jesus says, whoever, you know, he calls, um, he, he mentions slavery and they're like, well, we've never been slaves. This is so, what, like, what are you talking about? You guys have been in literal slavery all throughout the Old Testament, but of course, we're all slaves to our sin. If we sin, we're a slave to it. He, he's like, what do, you, what do you, I mean, when I read that, I'm like, what are you guys talking about? You were constantly being captured and overthrown. This is why you were looking with such hopeful expectation for Jesus to come and rescue you from the plight of your situation. We have a desire for perfection and a need for salvation that nothing short of God himself will ever be. And when we place our hope in anything other than him, we're, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment and despair. And, I, and I'll close with this. In everything that they were looking for in Othniel or, or Moses or Joshua, as we continue in King David or Solomon, as it goes on and on and on, everything that they were looking for in these people, it, it ultimately failed them and it was pointing forward to when Jesus would ultimately rescue them. We are in just as much slavery as Israel was in many times throughout their life to the very sins we commit. Jesus says, if you're a slave, if you sin, you're a slave to sin. And not, not only are we bound by it and captured and engaged in it, 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 it's like an oppressive ruler that makes our lives difficult. We experience that darkness outside of the light of God. So, so not only is it ruining us now and we're experiencing the darkness now, but we have darkness to look forward to unless someone comes and saves us. And the truth is, with, just like with every hero, Jesus is the better judge who raised himself up so that we would one day all be raised. Jesus is the better judge who never strayed from the commandments, who perfectly fulfilled the law of God and fulfilled his mission here on earth. The same commandment, the same law, that same goodness that we constantly turn from. Jesus is the better judge who went to war on our behalf against sin and death, 
purchasing our freedom for us. That same victory that he went and accomplished for us is something that we get to experience and look forward to forevermore. Jesus is the better judge who will bring peace on earth and not just a temporary one that lasts 40 years while he's here. This is an eternal rest and peace for his people that we all long for. Rick mentioned this in the sermon uh, on, on Easter Sunday service. When he talked about immortality, Ecclesiastes, it says that God has put that in us. The truth is we all long for and desire that. And, and it's what a weird thing. Why would you even desire eternity? Why do you want to live? Why do we spend so much money on healthcare to buy ourselves just a couple more years on this earth? It's because we want that. We desire it. God put that in our hearts and he's given it to us in Christ. Through faith in him, he's brought us that eternal rest that we now look forward to in hopeful expectation. Jesus is also the better judge who will never die and never disappoint. He is God from everlasting to everlasting something hard to grasp, but he is eternal and outside of time itself. There was never a point with which he did not exist and never a point with which he will not. And the great hope we have, I'm forgetting the name of the theologian, it's escaping me right now, but the great hope we have that Jesus will never stop loving us is the fact that he never began. That means there wasn't a decision where Jesus was like, now I will start loving you, but it's something he has always had in his heart was to love you. And he'll never step away from that. Never step away. It was something that he had before the foundations of the world in the beginning, and it's something he will never leave. Regardless of how awful and broken and messed up your life becomes, he will never walk away and pull his light away. Maybe, maybe in a sense to help you experience the darkness, but if you come back to Jesus trusting in his salvation, he's never going to forsake or abandon you. So he won't disappoint you. He won't die on you as Othniel did here. And, and leave you to wonder, what do I do now? But he, he's always there. And he will rule and reign with his people, allowing them to experience his victory over sin and death forevermore. And it's in him that we place our hope. It's him that we lift up and make the hero, not ourselves and not certainly anyone else. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we continue and look at all of these heroes, we're reminded of the brokenness inside of us too that we'd stop trying to figure it out on our own, that we'd stop looking to other people and idolizing them, that we would stop stepping out of your light and moving into darkness, God, that we would trust in you and experience the goodness with which you have for us. Thank you, God, for not leaving us in the situation in which we were in. Thank you for not leaving us in our sin, but providing the perfect sacrifice so that we could now be seen as having perfectly fulfilled your law. And thank you for inviting us into your kingdom. Amen.